Welcome to Across the Gun Counter, guys. I'm your host, Joe Riva, joined by my co-host, Tyler Weaver. All right, and this week, guys, we are going to be starting off with a more gunsmith-centric topic here, so I'm going to kind of pass the uh, the reins off to Tyler here this week to start off, and what are we talking about? All righty, so today we're going to be talking about barrels. I'm Pretty much everything that goes into them, selecting the barrel, the rifling process, what to look for. Because it's one of those things, a lot of people, okay, you pick an AR off the shelf or any gun for that matter. And do you really know what kind of rifling process was done on the barrel? Do you know what twist rate it is? Most of the time you just assume, okay, the manufacturer put it out and this is what's good for this gun. So really what what goes into barrel selection and it's one of those things where joey i know across the gun counter from your point of view (laughs) it's not a question that gets asked that much i mean you see it a lot of times i guess more with higher end stuff like what kind of barrel is here what's the twist rate i think that's probably the most common question i get is twist rate yep what's the twist rate when it comes to ar-15s and typically you know what is it chambered in not more of the you know into in-depth details about what actually goes into it is it a free float mm-hmm. is it a non-free float i mean most ars actually all ars are gonna be free float barrels but I'm, for the most I, part yeah i was gonna say correct me if i'm wrong but well, if you're using like the old style handguards that kind of clamp onto it then it's not really free float oh, okay gotcha mm. but yeah twist rate i mean you see a lot of hunters in specific asking about twist rate because it matters for the particular weight bullet that they're going to be using. Oh, that's especially common with shotguns with chokes, too. I notice everyone always asks the different chokes and stuff of that nature. True, true. You know, honestly, with <laughs> preparing for this whole podcast, I completely forgot about shotgun barrels. Oh, wait. I but... remember shotguns and you didn't? That's <laughs> Yes, you, act- wow. you called me out on it. Wow, yep. that's funny. Okay, so we're going to skip past shotguns, shotgun barrels yeah. right now, because that's a topic. For right now... Itself. You know what? For today, shotgunners don't matter. We're ignoring you. (laughs) So anyway, bringing it back, what really makes twist rate matter for the average shooter picking a a gun off the shelf, something that's already been barreled, is the particular bullet weight that they anticipate shooting. So like you were saying, Joey, for AR-15s, a lot of guys ask because, oh, what's the common ones for AR-15? 55 grain... 55 and 62, I believe, are the most common, which someone's going to beat me up over this on the, the different grainage and stuff like that. But there's like mm. one nine, one eight, and one seven. And if I recall correctly, one nine is kind of your more traditional standard for 55 grain. 55 grain, 62. For the shorter barrels. Yeah, I think. I was going to say, I believe the longer barrels were what? They might have even been one in 12. Well, the original style, I believe it was with the M16 variant during mm. Vietnam, M16A1, I believe they were one in 12. Because I know our one buddy, he was doing the the retro build, and I think his is actually a one in twelve twist rate. And his, yep, I think mine is as well. And that was a twenty inch barrel, if I recall correctly, on the old M sixteen A ones. Yes. Yeah. See, and that was using the pencil barrel. Which the cool thing is with the pencil barrel is the pencil barrel it's extremely accurate. There's, I mean, you don't get the longevity with a pencil barrel that you do with like a you know a heavier barrel. Mm. But... And once they they have a uh, they're susceptible to heat. Because they are so thin. Yep, so that's kind of why they call them a pencil barrel, because there's not nearly as much metal on the outside and stuff like that. They're much thinner. They don't have as long of a barrel life, but you do get a lighter barrel, and you typically are going to have a more accurate barrel. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to twist rate and barrel length, really what makes the difference, I mean, a lot of people do think it's like, okay, you know, I need this 
twist rate for this bullet weight. But really, I think, what, scientifically, the way it breaks down is you need a certain twist rate for the length of contact that that bullet actually makes on the rifling, which, granted, uh, a heavier bullet, you're tipping, there's only one way to cram it into the same diameter, and that's to make it longer. Well, that's so, the thing is some people make it seem like is if you, ha- if you have like a one in seven twist or you don't have certain twist rates, you're not able to shoot heavier grain ammo. Exactly. And it's, it's not necessarily the weight of the ammo. It's the amount of the length of the ammo. So like, especially when you get into, okay, like a lot more hunting rounds, you know, wad cutters compared to like a Spitzer bullet, then it changes it because the, the bullet dimensions are completely different. So for twist rate, typically for a shorter bullet, for that caliber, you're going to want like a slower twist weight. Twist. Oh, I'm gonna screw this up all night. <laughs> <laughs> twist rate. So, like you were saying with ARs, what was it? One in twelve for the twenty inch AR. Yep, that's a so, slower twist rate there. So that makes yes. more sense to have it over the longer distance. Exactly. So, twist rate is broken down. You know, one in twelve is one twist per every twelve inches, which makes it a slower twist rate than a one in seven which is one full twist for only 7 inches compared to 12. So for a shorter bullet, you're going to want a slower twist rate, Okay, which is kind of odd. So, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's almost trying to, trying to picture it without a diagram. It's kind of... It, it, it is very difficult, but if you think of it, okay, I hate using the term because, you know, typically, yes, lighter is a shorter bullet, Longer bullets are heavier. If you think the lighter bullet needs a slower twist rate, the larger bullet needs a faster twist rate. I think of it, think of, the bullet has more ass, so you need more twist to get it going. <laughs> Honestly, it's one of the things that stick in my mind, so I don't screw it up. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You know, the bullet's got a little bit more ass on it, so you have to try harder to twist it to spin it to get it to stabilize. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Yep, and you can tell whether you have the correct twist rate or not for your load because if the the twist rate is too slow, it, it just flat out won't stabilize. You can't, like a top, if you don't spin it fast enough, it just wants to wobble all over the place. You'll get a lot of, like, keyholing and, like, the bullet will be hitting the target sideways. That's why where rifles, that, that company was trying to do a couple of years ago without the rifling, like they had semi-rifling in the barrels. Do you remember that? Oh, the the straight rifling, I think it was. Yeah, it was like that straight fluting or something mm-hmm. of that nature. And it was- like, Yeah, because then it's not a rifle. Yeah, it's not a full twist. It's a, it's not even a one in anything twist at that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. So a, what was it? A slow twist will get it to tumble, whereas a fast twist will kind of- over stabilize it and you won't get consistency out of it so i would rather over stabilize it than under stabilize it but of course you're everybody's going for a perfectly stabilized bullet so that's why the twist rate barrels the shorter ar barrels you're going to see more commonly in like a one seven twist opposed to a one eight twist or a one nine twist because they're only about a seven and a half inch barrel so you're only going to have that one twist about the full length of the barrel Oh, absolutely, especially people running, like, pistol ARs. I mean, twist rate is pretty critical. A lot of people want to see at least, like, maybe one full twist before it leaves. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. So it's if you have a 1.8 or 1.9, it's not going to make sense if you're chopping barrels. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the other thing I have to explain to some of my customers where it's like, hey, Leo, I want to shorten this barrel up. 
So with shortening a barrel, yes, you have twist rate that plays into it, whether it will still be able to stabilize or not, depending on how dramatic you're cutting it. But also velocity changes with barrel length. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, if you're cutting, okay, say you have like a an odd size thread on the muzzle and you're um, cutting it back like that half inch or whatever it is, you're not going to see a tremendous drop in velocity. But if you're taking a few inches off, Man, I've had times where, like, specifically gas guns, where they won't cycle anymore. My uh, AK that I SBR'd, they had a 16-inch barrel. It went down to, I forget what the Krinkov is, maybe eight and a half, nine inches, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you're taking a good amount of, you're taking, like, maybe, what, five or six inches off the barrel, and now suddenly it doesn't want to cycle because it doesn't have that length of barrel to build up velocity and pressure. Yeah, and that's kind of crucial is you need that pressure with certain rifles. Actually, any rifle, it's going to be crucial to get a certain amount of pressure to actually get it to cycle. Oh, so, yeah. Some people just think, I can just chop a barrel willy-nilly, and that's that's really not the case. Or if you no. can chop it, you need to make sure you're chopping it at certain points. Yeah, and what surprised me, I shouldn't say surprised me, but one thing that really stood out, especially with AK barrels, is how off-center the bore is once you chop it. Because a lot of people don't realize that when you're trying to drill a hole perfectly straight over that distance, it, it in between, it varies. So at the front of the barrel and at the back of the barrel, it's it might be perfectly concentric. But in between, it kind of floats because that, that drill that drills that long-ass hole drifts, you know? Mm-hmm. So on, like, the AK, as soon as I chopped it, man, you could see it. the bore was far off to one side compared to the other. And it's something, okay, say you want it to chop the barrel and then thread it for a silencer. You kind of can't make that happen at that point. No, because you already took down how much of the barrel. Mm -hmm. And that leads me into another topic is how barrels are made. You know, especially with like AK barrels where they're hammer forged. So you have a lot of them are cold hammer forged. So you basically start out with something that might be like a six inch slug of steel. That just gets beaten the crap out of it with these hammers that elongates it. And sometimes they even go as far as to hammer forge the rifling into it. So they'll actually have like a, um, I think some of them might be tungsten carbide or some, some extremely hard metal that has the rifling fit into it that they essentially hammer the barrel around, if that that's makes sense. Do, well, that's how they do most pistol barrels, like the cold hammer forged barrels you always see. Mm-hmm. I actually learned that when I was looking at building a Glock years ago was, you know, cold hammer forged barrels, and basically that's how they do it. They just beat the rifling around it, essentially. Yeah, and honestly, when it comes to hammer forge, it's a very, a very tough, very wear-resistant barrel just because of the process of hammer forging. You know, you're essentially compressing that steel into the shape that you need it. I mean, it's also the most common way of doing a barrel, correct? It is one of the most economical, okay. you know, because it's it's quick, it's cheap, it gets the job done. Another one is just, you know, essentially you take a barrel that's drilled, if we want to get into rifling procedures, uh, button rifling, which is similar, where it takes like a tungsten carbide, what they call a button. So think of it like, uh, oh, maybe three or four inches of tungsten carbide that essentially has the rifling like molded into it. And you're shoving that through the barrel, which is essentially like ironing the rifling into the barrel, if that makes sense. It displaces the metal, 
with force. Okay. So it it's kind of a weird process, but I mean, I'm sure there's videos of it on YouTube where you're yep. essentially just forcing this this tungsten carbide button through and forcing the rifling into it. And because of the twist that's on that button, it automatically like twists the button through the barrel as it goes. Now, let me ask you this. This is a question I actually, I had years ago, some random mm-hmm. person asked me when I worked at one of my old jobs, when I was, you know, talking about guns. And I actually didn't know the answer to it. It was, can you re-rifle a barrel? I mean, you'll typically see that type of stuff with like more of the, the muzzle loader community or like flintlocks yeah. and stuff like that, where ball size and patch size, it's kind of subjective, if that makes sense. Where it's like, yeah. yeah, you can kind of open it up a little bit and recut the rifling and, you know, you're good to go. But now something like, let's say, I don't know, like a Mosin-Nagant. Let's say you had a Mosin-Nagant with a shot-out barrel. Could you re-rifle a barrel like that? I mean, cost aside. Cost aside, no. It's it's definitely, it's not something that's really feasible. Okay. I mean, you got to remember anytime you're taking metal out of it, now you're opening it up and it's it's not going to stabilize correctly. So the other thing, getting back to like rifling procedures, you know, button rifling is, and uh, hammer forging are definitely more of the the two common ones. You also have broach rifling, which cuts the rifling in, but like think of it like a cutter with each tooth getting progressively bigger and bigger to the point where it does cut it to the correct depth. That's another more economical way, but you also do get a lot of lot more like tooling marks, so you don't really. I don't want to say you don't see it as much, but it is it is a different way of doing it where button rifling is a little easier. Broach rifling is not going to put as much stress on the barrel either. Okay. So like hammer forging and button rifling, they put a lot of stress on the barrels to the point where, you know, some of those barrels can't even be contoured or fluted afterwards because the barrel is just going to want to twist and do all sorts of weird things once you start relieving that stress. Whereas, like, broach rifling is a cutting action, so it's not putting nearly as much stress on the barrel. I'm not exactly sure what manufacturers use broach rifling. As far as, like, like cut rifling, where you're taking a cutting tool and literally cutting each one of those grooves individually, I know uh, Bartland still does that, which is part of the reason their barrels are extremely accurate. Because if you're cutting each one of those grooves individually, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. You're basically so, fine-tuning the barrel and the making in the whole oh, yeah. process. Absolutely, which is why you'll even see um, Bartlin offers gain twist, which, I, I mean, you've probably never even heard of that from the retail nope. standpoint. So gain twist is where you could actually start out with the barrel at a slower twist and speed it up towards the muzzle. Ooh. Yeah. That's, yeah, that that's very interesting. You know, that's you, fascinating, is it? You know, I never heard of that with the rifling. I recall a while ago, wasn't someone trying to make an ammunition like that? I believe so. so or wasn't that part of the concept of a five seven? Where no, there was something where it started off slower, and then as it maybe I'm as just it builds up pressure, it spins faster. Yeah, maybe I'm just imagining this, but I could have swore I I read about a round like that, or maybe I was maybe I dreamt of a round like that. <laughs> maybe. But yeah, it's one of those things, like, especially when you're really trying to dial in for accuracy, you know, these people are going for stability. And one of the concepts is that, hey, you know, it's hard to stabilize around right out of the cartridge with a fast twist. But fast twist is what really stabilize 
stabilizes certain bullets. So it's like, if we could start it out slow, kind of ease it into that fast twist, will it be better? You have the ability to do that with cut rifling. Now, for doing, we'll say a hunting rifle or precision rifle. A really good hunting rifle. Yeah. Uh, what would you, what would be the preferred type rifling you would want to have for your firearm then? Honestly, I would go with something button rifled. You know, there's there's a lot of good companies that do button rifling. I mean, granted, cut rifle, if you're asking for the best, I would say cut rifling without a doubt. But there's a lot of great barrel manufacturers that still use button rifling processes. They just go the extra step, whereas they're um, air gauging their barrels, they're stress relieving them, which we can get all get into all that, but they're making a high quality barrel out of it, still using these more economical processes where they're giving you a barrel blank at like, you know, $280 somewhere in that ballpark, which really isn't bad. Well, see, because even so, I was just sitting here thinking, I'm like, you know, what's like the most common kind of rifling you see done or how they make the barrels, you know, in the process. And, I, you know, I just did a quick Google search on a couple companies. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Cold Hammer Forge is your typical for your entry kind of line company. Every every single company starting off is going to do a cold, just a Hammer Forge barrel. Yeah. Yeah, typically, like I said, it, it's one of the most wear resistant. And it's the most economic, like you said, too. It's the easiest yes. one to do. It's the quickest process to do. Yup, because that's the thing. It's like, oh, it was a while ago. I think I, I watched a video on the, uh, what was it? The Tavor, how they make those barrels. Yup, there's a, there's a video on YouTube of how the Tavor barrels are made. And I mean, they show you like in almost real time. Like, you know, here's the little, like, six-inch slug of steel. It goes through this machine. It gets rolled out a little longer, you know, and they do the, the cold hammer forging process. And at the end, it, the end of the line, it's a barrel. And it's just, it's crazy how quick it goes from just, like, raw material to completed barrel. Now, granted, it still needs, like, muzzle threads and stuff like that, but it's a, a functional barrel at that point. Hmm. Now... I'm kind of now. I'm kind of. I kind of have some more questions as we're kind of going through with different types of barrels, and I'm. I'm trying Go to ahead. Like I said, this this is a deep topic that I really, really wanted to get into because it's kind of like the the bread and butter of gunsmithing. Well, well, now it kind of has me thinking more. Who's doing what, and what companies are doing what kind of barrel making, and what process is going out? Because you always see cold hammer forged, and that's why why I had initially asked you, is that the most common process? Yeah. And it really, it, it absolutely has to be now that I think about it. There's no it way is. any other company can survive. I'm not survive, because that's not the right word, but you know what? Survive, yeah, that is the right word, with doing something more for less. I'd say anything sub $1,000 is probably going to have a cold hammer forged barrel in terms of your basic rifle. For the most part. I mean, like I said, button rifling is very economical as well because you think all you have to do is, I mean, basically one pass with that tool. Uh, Some manufacturers push it, some manufacturers pull it, but regardless, this thing has the rifling on it. It's got to get from one end of the barrel to the other. So it is very economical, but like I said, you're also putting a lot of stress on it. Yeah, so typically that's... those barrels are, you know, pre-contoured, they're shaped and everything. Whether or not they do the threads for the receiver beforehand, that I'm not sure of. But, you know, they just essentially pull that rifling through and there you go, it's done. So now when it comes to, I guess, selecting a barrel, let's say you're building you're building an AR. What would your first question be when it comes to building a barrel? What would the first thing you'd want to look at would be? I mean, uh, what what are we using the gun for? Is it going to be precision? 
Because for like ARs and stuff like that, I think Cold Hammer Forged is a great way to go. Okay. But, you know, if you're going for an absolute precision rifle, yeah, I want something that's button rifled, brooch rifled. And I don't even know if anybody's cut rifling AR barrels, but it's it's got to be stress relieved. Like I said, air gauging is another good one, mm-hmm. um, which we should probably discuss because a lot of people don't even understand what air gauging is. Yeah, what 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 exactly is air gauging? It's a way of basically measuring the how would I describe it? like the internal volume of a a rifle barrel. So if you have it calibrated at you know this diameter barrel should I don't want to say leak, but for lack of a better term, leak this much amount of air. If it's more, it's going to be a bigger bore. If it's less, it's going to be a tighter bore. So it's a very good way of them measuring consistency of their bore diameters. Okay. So, you know, especially as a gunsmith doing barrel threading, I use these indicator rods that have special ground bushings based on different barrel diameters. And I can almost tell you, like, on a Savage or something lower end, it's it's typically going to be on the higher diameter for the bore. Whereas, like, a more precision rifle, there's been times I actually had to go back to the manufacturer of my indicating rods and order a specific size because they were so tight, it was tighter than anything I had. Hmm. You know, if they said a barrel was 308, it was dead nuts 308. It wasn't 308 and two tenths. <laughs> you know, something something like that. It was right where it was supposed to be. It, it was dead nuts where it was supposed, like if it like I said, if it was marked 308, it measured 308. Hey, you know, so as, as we're talking about all this barrels and barrels 101 and gunsmithing and all that, you know, one thing that kind of popped into my mind was years ago that something mm. that I, I changed my perspective of was threading a barrel. And that was, I thought it was as simple as throwing a tap and die on there and just kind of threading the barrel. <laughs> and I think that, and from one of our first conversations I remember actually having working around in your shop was, yeah, you can do that, but... <laughs> but and, they usually end up in my shop. <laughs> yeah, so why don't you just want to do something like that for a barrel? What, you know, why wouldn't you want to do something as simple as a tap and die? And what would you recommend doing to thread a barrel properly? So, like I was saying before with the AK barrel that I cut down, the board doesn't necessarily, how do I want to put it? It doesn't run parallel to the center line of that barrel. So, if you can imagine, think of it like a a really elongated arc, okay. essentially. Granted, some barrels are a lot straighter than others. I've had runs, ones just about run dead nuts true, perfectly straight. And others, I mean... I basically ran out of adjustment on my lathe where the ass end of the barrel is running out as far as it possibly can where the muzzle is running dead nuts true. So that bore essentially arcs throughout that barrel, you know, extremely minute where it is hard to see, but it does wander off center. So if you say you were to take your barrel to a typical machinist and say, I want this threaded on a lathe, because, you know, that sounds like a decent procedure. They would indicate the outside of the barrel in and thread it true to the outside where it might not be true to the actual bore, which you run into problems with, especially with suppressors, where that bullet has to travel through that tube and not hit anything. Yeah. So if it's off center, it's going to end up smacking one of your baffles and sometimes they even take the suppressor with it. Yeah, that's I've actually heard of 
that happening in the field. Not well, when I say field, that ranges, and people mm-hmm. accidentally shooting their suppressors off because the barrel was off center, it wasn't threaded properly. Yeah, absolutely. Now, can you imagine that? Hold on, I just I just want to put that in perspective. <laughs> when it comes to firearms, and I'm not okay. Imagine buying a thousand dollar suppressor, paying your two hundred dollar mm-hmm. tax stamp on top of that, and then doing a thirty dollar threading job. Like, yep. what? What are you thinking? Oh, and, I and hey, and hey, to to whoever's listening to this, you know who you are. That you know, mm-hmm. I I don't know anyone in particular, but I've seen people. Like it's the one of the best, you know, the best things I ever heard in sales was back when I worked at Best Buy was you wouldn't put cheap gas in your Ferrari, and it's absolutely yeah. true. Like, why are you going to do all this stuff to have like all the best gear and then cheap out on the gunsmithing job or cheap out on the threading? Or just something like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Okay, so here's a good one, because I was going to say, yeah, I think I did tell you, I finally got my suppressor. Yes, which so, is exciting, can't wait to go try that. Yes, finally got suppressor in hand. I'm like, all right, I have to try it on my uh, short-barreled AR. Granted, of course. I, didn't do any, I didn't do any of the barrel threadings, it's got an FN, you know, factory barrel. So I, yeah, the muzzle brakes timed on it and everything. I slapped the suppressor on, and I have the the special um, not indicating rods, uh, suppressor alignment rods, I guess they're called that you you check the alignment with, and I drop it in, and you can noticeably see it's off to one side, oh, where okay. like I don't know if I would run a two two three or five five six like end cap on it, but with a thirty cal end cap, it's more than enough clearance. So I was popping it off outside just to try it. Oh, that's awesome! But it goes to show you, like even a very reputable manufacturer like FN, you know, by the time you have their barrel threads, the muzzle device, uh, this had to be timed with the uh, the special shims. You know, you have tolerance stacking in there that can skew it slightly. And it's enough where, like, I can notice that alignment rod's off-center. You know, say you did your own barrel threading job and it was worse than what FN can put out from the factory, good luck. <laughs> yeah. It says something, doesn't it? Yep. And that's the thing when it comes to, like you said, if you're just running a die over it, especially with a suppressor, it's got to butt up against like a nice square shoulder or that can's getting tweaked. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is, you know, again, I, I don't understand why some people spend this amount of money on some of this gear and then they'll cheap out on something like that or they'll buy the most expensive can, but then they'll have the cheapest barrel. Like, I mean, there's certain oh, times, like, no. honest, like, I'll be honest. Barrel's where the money's got to go. <laughs> like, I'll be honest, there are certain things, like my 458, I have a cheaper barrel for my 458 SOCOM. And, I mean, that was just the build that I was like, I just want to try this round. I, I It's a range just, toy. Yeah, this was literally what that, the whole thing was behind it. I wasn't putting in something mm-hmm. that I'm going to put, like, $10,000, you know, you know, even $1,000 I might have into the build total when I'm done. But it's... When I even got the the barrel, I had even said to you, I said, if I really like this caliber and I really like this build, I'm either A, going to get a new barrel for this, or B, I'm going to get another one with a better barrel. Yep. And I mean, that that's where I am with a lot of uh, customer builds. You know, if somebody brings me their standard Remington 700 and was like, hey, you know, I want a decent barrel for this and true up the action. Okay, great. We're starting with a good barrel. I, you know, I could fix the action. That's no problem. But mm-hmm. putting a shit barrel on a good action isn't going to get you anywhere. No, exactly. And I mean, if you're, if you're looking to do anything serious with it, I'd say. 
I mean, if you're looking, even if you're looking for a fun range toy at times too, it really depends on what your options are out there too. Like I know certain mm-hmm. calibers, you are a little more limited in what's considered a cheap and what's considered a good barrel. Yeah, fifty Beowulf, I think, is kind of a decent example of that. There's not a whole. Of course, someone's going to tell me there's a thousand different Beowulf barrels out there, <laughs> but I mean, let's be there's there's really not a whole lot of fifty Beowulf barrels out there, and a lot of them you see, yeah, don't even they're listed as what twelve point seven or something like that. The metric measure, I forget for what it is. Yeah, for fifty cal. But even that, uh, what the hell was it? That two two four Valkyrie. I guess a lot of people were having issues stabilizing that round with just the uh, the barrels that were available. I feel like that was a fad because I haven't heard yeah. too much about that in a while. Yeah. Well, again, if yeah, especially reloaders, if reloaders can't get behind it, the caliber kind of dies. That's very true. I mean, there's still people reloading for seven seven Jap. Yup. So uh, says yeah. something. Uh, again, twist rate plays into it. If we can't find a twist rate to justify a caliber, the the caliber just dies. You know, because these manufacturers only put out certain twist rates. They're going to put out what's you more common and what's for more... I'd, I'd say, from your major manufacturer, you're going to have to expect a more common twist rate. Or, if you're at... you got to be asking the right questions when you're looking at your most common manufacturers. Like, especially when it yeah. comes to, like, an AR-15 or your AK. If you're saying, hey, can I be shooting these heavier loads and do this, this, and this with it? It's like, listen, you're spending $700 on this AR-15. Yeah, don't expect miracles. Like, come on, let's let's be real here. You have to let, let's get back down to earth here. You have yep. to understand the limitation of what you're paying for too. And I'm not trying to knock that $700 AR-15. I think my first, you heard my 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 AR-15. I think I actually paid about 500 bucks for, and that was before that was for the <laughs> Troy, and that was right before the pandemic. So yep. that'll tell you that'll really. That's not even my first AR. That's just the one I have right now. Yeah, just something you picked up. Yeah, so. If that tells you anything, and that was actually a decent one for the money, and you kind of have to remember, you get what you pay for. So if you're you're paying more for some of these guns, like I'll use Bergara, for example, like we have a really nice one of good rifles. Ooh, so like they have a they have a twenty two rifle, the B fourteen, and that Mm -hmm. rifle is probably about a I want to say like I was gonna say about a thousand dollars. Oh, at least it's it's like um you know like low thousands like 1213 something like mm-hmm. that but i'm curious what actually is in that barrel now because it's it's a really nice gun and it, it fetches such a high price tag and people are like well it's a 22 i go yes but look at who's making the firearm it's not your yeah average. absolutely and i'm not trying to bash any company when i say anything like this but it's not your run-of-the-mill 22 it's not like you know a rossi or a ruger or, or something like that that's just off the shelf and i'm not trying to say those companies are bad but it's not something as simple as a ruger american where They're- yes Ruger American, you know, they're putting out a rifle to be economical. They want people to be able to buy it. Simpler. Bagara, yeah, they want, okay, the people that know the difference, the people that can achieve a certain level of accuracy, they're not going to pick up a Ruger American for what they're going for. No. I mean, they might have one for the squirrel in their backyard, but when they're going to the range to shoot, you know, really accurate groups out of a twenty-two, they're going to want a Bagara. They're going to want a CZ, something they put a little bit more money into. Exactly. It's funny you mentioned CZ because CZ has some really nice twenty two rifles. They do. They they put a lot of very good quality machining into their firearms. I cannot knock that. The only thing I can bitch about is that they're metric, so I can't thread barrels for them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a nineteen forty five American lathe, you know? That's... I mean, in the forties, did we know what the metric system was? Hey, I mean, we won two world <laughs> wars, right? This is true. We don't need, remember what my favorite is, you know, there's countries that use the metric system and then there's countries that went to the moon. 
Yeah. <laughs> hey, just saying. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I joke with customers when they're like, hey, I got this CZ, you know, I'd like to, you know, have a custom barrel made up. It's like, yeah, the problem is my lathe doesn't know what metric is. You know, they they kind of look at me. It's like it's from 1945. It's a South Bend. I mean, it's American. This, Come on. Yeah, this is old American machinery. We didn't have Plus, we didn't they, have time for that metric nonsense. Exactly. I, I think this lathe might have even come from the Department of the Navy too. Oh man, imagine. Yeah, that. Oh yeah, that that time too. They have been like really no metric. Yeah. Actually, no. I think the military was using a little bit of metric. So I couldn't even tell you honestly. All I know is like my. I know now. The way a lot of these manual lathes are geared, the way it makes the threads, it's only set up for like inch pattern, whatever you want to call it, inch pattern, American standard, you know, threading. You would have to change out specific gears to be able to run metric threads. And even then you can't engage and disengage like you do with typical threading. So like rebarreling a metric thread guns, a lot bigger of a task on a lathe like I have. Than some of the other lathes that can do, you know, both. Well, I remember that was one of the initial problems. People were complaining with the the first CZ Scorpions that had come into the country. The pistol, okay. the threading was the was the more metric threading, and then that's why the second batch that had uh, what, come in, they had thirteen, something like that. I think it was like that left hand thirteen thread, but I I could be could be wrong, and that's why they okay. got to the uh, the half by twenty eight was because everyone's like, wow, we have to do, deal with this ridiculous threading and. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always showing off people using these with suppressors. Now we have to get adapters for our suppressors and all this exactly. stuff. Exactly. It's a whole nightmare. That's, that's the only thing that bugs yep. me my USP. The the threading is that left-hand thread pitch. So I can... Yep. And it's one thing, like, uh, I've had a couple customers ask me, like, hey, can you thread, you know, my AK for a standard, like, slant break or whatever? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Which they, they don't usually take kindly to that. But it's one of those things I explain to them, like, I have an American lathe. So over the distance of a muzzle break, I can turn it to that 14 millimeter diameter. That's no problem. It's just a one millimeter thread I can't really get. I think it's, uh, what is it? It's probably close to like 26 threads per inch that my lathe will do. That gets you kind of close to that one millimeter uh, thread pitch. Mm-hmm. So it's like over the length of a muzzle break, it really doesn't make any damn bit of difference. You know, your your sloppy ass slant break will still screw on. But if you're going for... <laughs> You know, Plus if you're going for, it's an AK. Yeah, but if you're going for a true 14 millimeter by one left hand thread, I can't do it. Definition of Tyler's AK builds: rifle is fine. Yeah, rifle's fine. You get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, guys, I do take a lot of pride in my AK builds. They're oh, yeah. they're pretty meticulous. Absolutely, and it they really go to show. And that's the thing yeah. is with with AK, I think barrel selection might not be as crucial. I'd say it's, it's pretty much like, just who has them on sale right now. It, it pretty, but it really is with AK barrels. I mean, that's kind of the one cool thing I think about being an AK guy versus someone like an AR guy. It's like, like okay, AK, where where can I find this barrel? Is it finished or unfinished? Does that matter to me? Yeah, <laughs> is it chrome lined or non chrome lined? Do I feel like cleaning? Am I shooting corrosive or not corrosive out of this? Ooh, one? that's another one we didn't touch on when it comes to barrels: chrome lined versus non chrome lined. Ooh, that's that's really so, the main difference when I think AK barrels is chrome lined. Yeah, when it comes to AK lined. barrels, so especially when you're doing a build, I mean, chrome line is going to be more wear resistant, where it's not going to be as susceptible to moisture and erosion stuff like that. But it it's not foolproof by any means. 
I mean, you could see the pictures. I think I posted on Instagram of that Arasaka with a chrome-lined barrel that was, you know, oh, was- I don't want to say neglected. Neglected's a bad word. It was used in, you know, the Pacific. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's got pitting in it. So chrome-lined's not uh, foolproof, but it definitely helps to protect the bore, especially when shooting, like, corrosive ammo and stuff like that. But if you're going to drill through it or try to recrown it, forget it because chrome is extremely hard. You can do it, but it's not fun. It's funny. That's kind of the dilemma I'm having right now with the Yugo M72 build is okay. if I go non-chrome lined, it's more true to how the original, how the Yugoslavian builds were. But yeah. if I go chrome lined, it makes Then it's better. <laughs> it makes so much more sense. And the Yugoslavians, they said the reason they didn't use chrome lining was because the ammunition they were using wasn't corrosive. I mean, it was corrosive, but it wasn't as corrosive because I believe it was like a semi-corrosive okay. primer. And they said because it was brass case, it was different than steel case, than the copper wash brass, so it was less. It was just a bunch of nonsense. To be honest mm-hmm. with you, I think it was just the cost-cutting measure at the end of the day. They were just like, eh, we'll make the guys clean. Who cares about that? Yeah, Which, that's the other thing. It's, it's like, okay, you, you, you run a brush through it with some oil. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. but And um, I guess it's just because, you know, those rifles were so overbuilt as it was. It's like, do they really, you know, just that extra little chrome lining would have made sense, but. Yeah, and again, when it, mm. it comes to production standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. barrels are one of the more expensive parts of a firearm. Uh, true. It's not uncommon, especially for me as a gunsmith, to be putting like, a $600 barrel blank on a gun. And that's that's the blank alone. You know, mostly when you start getting into like the lightweight, the carbon fiber wrapped barrels, stuff like that, that you're really pushing the higher price end. But, you know, a lot of money kind of should be going into your barrel. That That's the life of the firearm. Especially precision rifle. Yeah. You're not putting the, the majority of your money into that barrel. I mean, you're... Absolutely. And it's one of those things, I think I touched on it before, where like once I start machining a barrel, I can tell you if it's stress relieved or not. Um, some barrels are hand lapped. So mm-hmm. just from the, the process of rifling the barrel, especially with like a broaching or some sort of like cutting tool, you have you have tooling marks that get dragged along the barrel. And um, with a bore scope, you can really see it. It looks like different cuts in the rifling itself. Lapping is basically a process of smoothing all those out. I know a lot of old timers used to do a technique called fire lapping, which sounds sketchy as hell. Um, pretty much you take a lead bullet, you know, typically cast yourself that you impregnate like a lapping compound on the outside of, and you fire a certain amount of those through your bore and they smooth it out. So yeah, talk, talk about an old technique, but you know, a lot of guys used to swear by it because, yeah, it does. It smooths out the tooling marks in your barrel and makes it a a smoother shooting barrel. So there there is some merit to it, but it's kind of a I don't want to say a lost art. But when you have barrel manufacturers that are hand lapping barrels before they get to your doorstep, it kind of eliminates the need for that. Mm-hmm. So you have lapped barrels um stress relieving is another really good one i can tell you a stress relief barrel from a non-stress relief barrel just when i start machining it just because of the way the the metal removes it's one of those things stress relieving is like a process so the way i understand it like heating and cooling the barrel mm-hmm. to relieve the built-up stresses in it from the rifling process or the the drilling process and um 
if you've done any sort of metal work, you know that machining metal induces stress. There's been times I've bored out like uh, bushings or sleeves, and as soon as you cut it with a, a saw blade, it kind of pinches that blade. That, that metal wants to spring close now that the stress is relieved. So it's one of those things, stress relieving a barrel allows it to kind of get back into this um, natural state, if you will. Okay. So that, you know, you can perform these machining processes to them without any sort of adverse effects. So it's one of those things the end user might not exactly see or care whether it's a stress relief or non-stress relief barrel. But especially when you're doing more accurate, more critical process on it, do you notice critical. it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things, you know, if you give me a Savage barrel and a... Uh, Oh, I'll just say it. My go-to is shilling barrels. You know, if you give me those two barrels, don't tell me which is which and have me machine it. I could tell you which one <laughs> is the savage and which one is the shilling. Just based on, yeah, I mean, just ba- I, I Honestly, I could probably do it blindfolded just because of, with a manual machine, you're you're physically handling the controls, handles, I don't know what you want to call them. But, yeah, you feel everything. So, like, you can feel it in your hands, the... And just the different qualities of steel. So it's really interesting. You can always feel. Yeah, you kind of always notice that between like certain guns, the polymers too, which is a oh absolutely polymer, and which is a better polymer, if you will. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, I I never want to knock a gun company, like specifically Savage. I don't want to knock a gun company for being economical. No, because we need that. We yeah, we need them in the industry. It's just one of the things. If you're going for a a super precision rifle it's it's just not the it's not the manufacturer to be spoken about it's does that make sense i i get that but i know there's some of my customers who will be like you know i have a savage and that's the most accurate rifle i've ever shot and don't get me wrong they're super accurate super accurate rifles yeah i mean uh what is it savage has like a uh quote unquote like a free floating boat bolt head so it kind of sits where it where it needs to be Whereas, like, if the the bolt heads are fixed to the bolt, you might have one lug that has, like, uh, 90, 85%, 90% contact. The other lug might have 20, so you, you get a little bit of flex out of it. So, like, I do see some merit behind it. And for an economical rifle, it will give you, I mean, in my opinion, outstanding accuracy for what you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to, like, we were just talking before we hit record, you know, a defiance action where you're yeah. paying... Seventeen, eighteen hundred dollars for the receiver. That's no trigger crew, no barrel, no stock, any of that. Where shit, eighteen hundred dollars. What will that get you for a savage? Oh, probably top of the line and some. You know, so it there. There's something to be said with the the QA, the uh, attention to detail, stuff like that. You know, especially when it comes to materials. And when it comes to selecting a barrel, specifically if you're having a gun rebarreled with a blank, I mean, barrel materials, everything, everything that they put into it between hand lapping, air gauging, it all makes a difference in the end. No, of course. So, hey, on that note, guys, I hope you all learn something when it comes to barrels, you know, whether it be, you know, whether you want a short barrel, long barrel, you know, I guess at the end you decide how much you want to put into your barrel. But I know if you asked uh, Tyler over here, he's going to tell you, you're going to want to put all the money into the barrel. Yes. All the money's <laughs> go into the barrel. All the money's <laughs> go into the barrel. 
<laughs> but hey, I hope you learned a little bit something about barrels, kind of a quick breakdown or not so quick breakdown, I guess, on barrels. And, you know, I think there's definitely more we can talk about in barrels in the future, especially with fluting and cuts and... Oh, and I will. Like I said, barrel, <laughs> bar- <laughs> barrels are where I start to dive in deep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot to be said about them, and I think there's a lot that people just don't know about what goes into a barrel. So I hope we could clear up some of the mud involved in barrels, selecting a barrel, barrel making, what all that uh, jargon is. <laughs> absolutely. You know, learn some terms, some twist rates, you know, faster, slower twist rates. But Tyler, where can they find you at? You guys can find me on the socials at Precision Rifle Works and at www.precisionrifleworks.com. And you guys can follow uh, myself over on Instagram on, uh, you know, say picture 762 as well as YouTube. But most importantly, you can follow Across the Gun Counter on Instagram at Across the Gun Counter or on our website, www.acrossthegunkounter.com. We're on one of our awesome many, you know, distribution points where you can find us at Spotify, Apple, all that. Like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. You know, hit follow so you can get all the, uh, you know, the newest content from us wherever you guys are. Give a rating. We want to see some ratings coming up. Please, please give us a rating, like, subscribe, all that good stuff, guys. Until next time, take care, stay safe. See you guys.